Shalom. That's the short way of saying grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But one word says it all, which believe me, as Jewish people, they rarely have only one word. Um, Paul. Paul is writing a letter to a church in Rome that he has yet to visit. He is planning a visit there. He's uh, planning a missionary journey to Spain, and he's going to stop in Rome along the way. And as was Paul's practice, he uh, sends a letter ahead of himself to introduce himself and to introduce the things he would really love to talk to the brothers and sisters in Rome about. And in the very apex of this letter, he gets to the crux of his issue. Because the church in Rome, apparently by that time, even by 60, had already lost their mission to the Jewish people. It had become largely a Gentile church, and they weren't even thinking about the Jews at that point in time. So Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, how can Paul testify about the Jewish people? He was Jewish, right? He was raised in a Jewish home in Tarshish under the feet of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul himself said he was one of them. He was Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous for God. He was so zealous for God that even in his great zeal for God, he was charged by the temple priest to go to far off Damascus to persecute the brothers and sisters there who followed what they called the way, Jewish people who believed in Jesus. And it was on that road to Damascus that Paul came face to face with the living Lord Jesus Christ, driven to his knees, blinded by the glory of God. That zeal for persecution was stripped from him, and a new zeal was given, and he became the preeminent missionary of New Testament times. I too can testify to the zeal of the Jewish people, though no Paul. I was also raised in a Jewish home in North Denver, Colorado, and we were zealous for God. We lived in a small community, in our community that was uh, primarily the Jewish community in Denver. If you know anything about Denver, is the nice homes, the big synagogues on the west side. North Denver was not a hotbed of Jewish activity. A small Jewish community in the midst of essentially a Latin American community. And we live within walking distance of our little shul. And we were zealous for God. And we knew that the only way that we could please God was to keep his commandments perfectly. How many commandments did God give to Moses on Mount Sinai? It's a catechism question. Ten, right? We all saw the movie. We saw Charlton Heston. He came down off the mountain. He had ten commandments. This was not the Mel Brooks version where he had 15, dropped five, and settled on ten. Um, ten commandments carved in stone by God's own finger. And yet, as I was growing up, our rabbis taught us that, in fact, God gave ten commandments carved in stone but 603 additional commandments in the, in the texts of Torah, 613 commandments to keep perfectly to find favor with God. You think 10 are hard? You should try 613. 
You see, on the Sabbath, for example, uh, you're not allowed to play soccer. You're not allowed to watch Saturday morning cartoons. You're not allowed to ride in any car. You're not allowed to carry any money. You're not allowed to use any electricity or cook. You're not allowed to do anything. In fact, you, we work very hard to rest on the Sabbath. And we could do this. We could walk to shul. We could worship. We could get together and eat the food our mamas prepared the night before, and we could sit together in community and argue about the scriptures and, yes, gossip and do all kinds of other things. And we had a small little community that was very tight. But what was happening in our community, because we were probably, and from what I understand of your history here at St. James, we were probably a little bit like you, um, our synagogue was closing. We couldn't afford a rabbi. We had this little itinerant fellow who would come around every now and then and check on us, see how we were doing, and give us a message. But what was happening in our community, because we lived in largely a Mexican community, is Jewish people who would grow more, grow more affluent over time would move to the west side, where all the nice homes and the big synagogues are. My mother was raising us as a single-parent school teacher, and we could never afford to move to the west side. And one day the rabbi came on Sabbath, and he said, you may no longer worship here, you've already broken the law. We no longer had a minion, uh, ten men over the age of 13, to even have worship. And our synagogue closed. And my mother was distraught, a big part of her fellowship, and she was the kind of woman who would put the kids to bed and then go up into the kitchen, have a cup of coffee, and yell at God. She didn't think we could hear, because, of course, we had that lovely popcorn ceiling that insulated everything from sound. But my mother's up in the kitchen yelling at God, God, what do you want from us? We can't afford to move to West Denver. We don't have a place to worship here. How can we show our faithfulness? And she said, I have a plan. Because a big part of being Jewish is tradition. And tradition says that if any one Jewish community can keep the Sabbath perfectly just once, Messiah will come. And we worked very hard to keep that tradition. And now my mother is in a situation where she and her family can no longer be a part of this great effort to bring Messiah. But her plan was that on Friday, after school let out, she'd load all the kids in the car, all our junk in the car, and we'd schlep down to West Denver. Schlep is just a technical Yiddish word. It means to carry all your junk. And we schlep to West Denver, and we stayed with a friend of hers who'd inherited a big home from her family, she was a single woman named Linda, and we stayed with her on Friday night, worshipped on the Sabbath when the sun set on Saturday night. We slept home again, and it seemed to work for a while, for a very short while, because my mother, suddenly up in that kitchen with her cup of coffee yelling at God, God, Linda doesn't like us so much anymore. <laughs> I think a whole family descending upon this woman every weekend got, grew a little tiresome, I guess. And she said, I don't know what to do, but I have a plan. And she decided we would just drive to shul. Now, I don't know 
if you can imagine, and I don't know why, my mother's a stubborn woman, still with us, thank God, but still stubborn. She probably should have driven us to the neighborhood and parked somewhere a couple blocks away and let us walk to the shul. But that wasn't my mom. She drove right into the parking lot, empty of cars full of people, all with a look on their face that said, no Messiah this weekend, because we had already broken the law, right? And they started to shun us, and my mother in that kitchen yelling at God, they don't like us either. We are Jews, we carry our faith on our back, we'll just worship at home. And we started worshiping at home. And little by little, as you can no doubt guess, that entire foundation that we had based on works of the law had started to erode away. Home worship dwindled. By the time I got to college, I had lost any kind of relationship I had with God. You see, in high school, it was easy. I was one of, I went to a high school of uh, 1,200 kids. Most of them, 51%, were uh, Hispanic, uh, many, many whites. There was a couple of blacks. There were three little Jewish kids, one of them with a beanie on. <laughs> now, let me take you back to your first day of high school. Do you remember how warm and loving that community was when you got there? <laughs> the kids just flocked to greet me. In fact, they flocked so fast that they ran right past me, swiping that yarmulke right off my head. And I lost seven yarmulkes the first week of high school. And my wife, my mother said, I have a plan. She taught English in that school, not physics, didn't know anything about inertia. Uh, she pinned that yarmulke into my hair. Needless to say, I lost some red hair, the pins, and the yarmulke the next day. And I started arguing with God, too. I don't like this, God. You know what? Frankly, I'd rather be more comfortable with them down here than with you up there. I'll deal with you later. So I quit wearing my yarmulke. I quit affiliating myself with Jewish people. I kept a low profile and went to college. And if you would have asked me in college, I would have pompously told you I was a logical determinist, which nobody really knows what that means, but... I don't think I was really an atheist, but I certainly was angry, and I certainly wasn't ready to deal with God. My second year of college, I met a girl. She was beautiful. I fell in love, but she was not Jewish. My mother was not happy. She was a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Now, honestly, I had never heard of a Missouri Synod Lutheran before. I just thought she was some kind of weird Catholic. Um, <laughs> she had a foundation, too. Her foundation was at Trinity Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And it was a foundation built on a relationship with God through a personal relationship with Jesus, who I wanted to know nothing about. And so as college has a way of eroding all foundations, her foundation was eroded a little bit too, probably when she agreed to start dating me. And we had one rule in our relationship. You don't tell me about Jesus and we'll be just fine. And it seemed to work for a while. We got out of college. We got married. I went to law school there in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we had our first child, a little girl, and I 
decided at the finish of school that I was going to move to Denver, back to Denver, to start a new business with an old Jewish friend of mine who was my partner. And we moved my wife and my daughter to a new city where they had never lived, took them out of the relationship they had with any friends they might have had, put them in a house in Denver, and then I went to work 20 hours a day. And she didn't tell me about Jesus, and I was just fine. Um, But she was lonely. And so one day, I think she missed the relationship that she had with God. And just a secret, I didn't miss the law at all. I was doing just fine. But she came, I came home from work and she said, Kevin, I think I need to go back to church. I said, hold your horses there. That's not part of the deal. You want to go back to church, I guess that's your business. It's a free country. But never bring it home to me. I know all about you Christians. I thought I knew all about you Christians. You see, growing up in my community, I was witnessed too many times by Christian people who I'm sure were very sincere in their attempts. But, well, as an example, my next-door neighbor, little boy, fourth grade, he's a Roman Catholic, goes to Catholic school. His way of witnessing to me when I was in fourth grade was showing me his crucifix and calling me Christ killer. I said, Christ killer? I didn't even know the guy. I wasn't there. He goes, my priest said, you killed Jesus. And I became CK before Calvin Klein ever came along, and that's what my nickname was for four years. CK, Christ killer. I just went with it after a while. You know, you can only argue so long. When I was in high school, I had a friend. His name was Greg, and he came up to me, and he said, Kevin, I know you're Jewish, but I'd really like you to come to church with me this coming weekend. I said, Greg, I don't go to church, forget it. And he said, well, if you'd come to church with me this weekend, you could meet a guy who's speaking at my church who's Jewish and he believes in Jesus. I said, he's Jewish and he believes in Jesus? That's impossible. That's like being a Hindu for beef. They just don't go together. And so I did go with him that weekend. I went to argue with this guy to tell him he's no longer Jewish if he believes in Jesus, that he has defamed the memory of all of our families who were lost in the Holocaust, all the things that I've heard ever since. And I went to his church, and I was, I was ready to do the battle, you know, and I'm sitting in this warehouse in lower downtown Denver before it was regentrified. I'm sitting on this rickety metal chair, folding chair, and yeah, I don't know anything about church, but there's a lot of weird things going on around me. And, you know, time memories, they are what they are. But the thing I do remember is the priest coming out, or pastor, or whatever you call him. And he said, there is a sinner amongst us. And I'm looking around saying, I hope he isn't me. And my friend Greg said, stands up and says, here he is. And he introduced me. And I got out of there. I saw what they did to the guy on the wall. I wanted no part of that. (laughs) And I didn't stick around long enough to, to find out that you could be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And I think when my wife said she wanted to go back to church, that memory reel in my head started rolling. And I truly believed that was going to be the end of our marriage. It wasn't. She went to church quietly, never brought it home to me. 
Our little girl grew up. She got to be about two years old. And my wife came to me very faithfully and said, Kevin, I think it's time I started taking Courtney to church. And I said, no, that's where I draw the line. My daughter is Jewish, and she's going to be raised Jewish. My wife is a very good and very bright woman. She knows exactly who I am. So she said, okay, let's raise our daughter Jewish. But I don't know anything about that. So you have to teach her. You have to teach her about God. You have to teach her about the Bible. You have to take her to synagogue every week, take her to Sunday school every week. And the Reformed community, they have their Sunday school, which is their religious classes. I thought about that for about a minute, and I thought, you know what? That's a lot of work. Okay, you take her. And she did take her to St. John's Lutheran Church in Denver, and they went every Sunday. And while my wife was good about not bringing it home to me. I didn't have the same deal with my daughter. And she was two, three years old maybe by this time. And one evening, we were sitting at our dining room table trying to eat our Easter meal of ham, of all things. And she broke down. You see, that morning... And I didn't know anything about this. You know, our policy in the house was don't ask, don't tell. So I didn't ask. My wife took my little girl to church in the dark at a cemetery. Privately, I'm thinking, oh, that's a horrible thing to do to a kid. And as you could no doubt imagine, it was an Easter morning sunrise service. That night, my daughter is just... You could just see the wheels in her head running. And suddenly, in the middle of our ham, she jumps up out of her high chair, stands on top of the dining room table, and says, Daddy, you need Jesus too. She broke my rules. And I harumphed, and I picked up my plate, and I turned around to go into the living room to eat my meal. And when I turned my back on her, she started crying. And she started crying because I'm convinced, even at her young age, that that morning in that cemetery, she experienced in a very real way the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She knew because of his sacrifice for her and his resurrection for her that she was going to heaven. And she knew that daddy was going to hell. And she didn't want daddy to go to hell, so she risked my wrath to tell me about Jesus. I'm standing there holding my plate, listening to my daughter cry, and I did what any dad would do. I turned around, I put my plate down, I gave her a hug. I said, don't ever walk on the dining room table again. (laughs) I put her back in the seat. I said, I love you, honey. And the moment passed. It wasn't a lightning strike. It wasn't, you know, praise the Lord, I'm saved. It doesn't work like that, but... I think in those couple of seconds of listening to her cry, my heart was softened to the name of Jesus. No longer was he someone whom I had killed or someone who had been persecuting my people for thousands of years. He was someone who loved my daughter and whom my daughter loved. And I could talk about him from then on without getting angry. It took a long time. I mean... My, my, we had four more kids, three more kids, four kids, and my wife took them faithfully every Sunday to church while I stayed home 
in my, and I joined a cult in those days. Uh, anybody ever hear of the cult of Whovians? Whovians are guys who stay home on Sunday and watch Doctor Who on PBS. Yeah. I knew everything about the TARDIS, Doctor Who. I had my favorite. I wore a scarf, everything. I was a Whovian. They went to church. But they grew up, and they went to the day school at that church. And they had... Anybody here a Lutheran day school teacher? Good, because they are the most annoying people in the world. (laughs) They are. They actually believe that parents should be involved in the lives of their children. And my daughter's kindergarten teacher kept nagging me. Kevin, we would love for you. I think she thought I was self-employed. I didn't really have a job. Would you come over here and do this, that, and the other thing? And I'd say, no, Mary Lou, I'm not comfortable with that. Forget it. And she goes, trapped me. Kevin, you like books, right? Oh, I love books. Do you like kids? And what are you going to say to a kindergarten teacher? Yeah, I love children. Okay, I have a job for you. Would you come over on Thursday morning and be our kindergarten librarian? I'll send the kids down in twos. You help them get their little books, and then you send them back. It's not a big deal. It'll take about an hour. Okay, Mary Lou, I can do that. And so every Thursday morning, I'm sitting on this way too little chair in the library uh, while these kids would come in and get their little books, and I would date stamp them and send them back to class, and they would be just fine except for this one little girl who was a friend of my daughter's. She would never leave the library. In fact, she would never come to me without saying, here, Mr. Parvis, here's my book. Do you know Jesus yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Go back to class. And she would never leave that library without going to the door first, turning around, looking at me and says, you know, we're all praying for you. Wow, that whole school was praying for me. You know, someone once said that Jesus is so big and kids are so small that when he gets inside of them, he just leaks out all over. I think that is so true about children and their faith. They are just, they have no fear. But unfortunately, when we get bigger, there's a lot more room inside for Jesus to hide, and we we don't have the right words, we're afraid of saying something wrong, we just aren't as zealous about sharing our faith as little children are. And so I started this ministry in 1996 here in the St. Louis area to sort of help our church body get a little more childish to try to understand that there are Jewish people in our midst who have no hope. We're in the middle of the high holidays right now. I'll give you a little tract when we go downstairs. You can see what I did for yesterday. But it's, it's a cycle of trying to repent, trying to do good deeds, and never knowing whether or not God is listening to you. And so that's why today so many Jewish people don't even believe in God. And they need the gospel as much, if not more, than anybody. And so our ministry is one specifically to Jewish people. Yeah, we don't discriminate. We witness to everyone, but in Jewish ways. And so we've been over there for 22 years now. And, you know, it's still a small congregation, still a small ministry. We do have branches of our ministry now in Detroit and three in South Florida, one in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, we have some volunteers in churches who we've built a network with over time because our goal is to have a branch of our ministry in all 
I think there are 38 communities in, this, in the United States that have 20,000 or more Jewish people. And they're not beating down our doors to get baptized, but that's not our job. The Holy Spirit will bring faith when and where he will, but he calls us to, to reach out. Paul finishes his part of his letter here in very good Jewish fashion. He asks a lot of questions. In verse 14, he goes on. How are they, the Israelites, to call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I just drove through Glen Carbon for the first time in my life. I don't know how that happened. 25 plus years in this area, and I've been to Meridian Village, but I've never crossed the covered bridge. It's a beautiful little town. All that new growth going on up there to the north of the road. And all the growth in your congregation, what a blessing it is to see. But I'll bet there's people in Glen Carbon who don't go to church. I saw a couple this morning along a footpath along a creek or a river, whatever that is over there. And I'm thinking, there's some people who clearly are not dressed for church. They're not prepared to go to church. Church probably hasn't entered their mind. They need the gospel too. Yes, God uh, gives us our mission, a heart for Jewish people. And I'll bet there's Jewish people in and around Glen Carbon here. I know there are. But there's a lot of people who yet, as yet do not know Jesus. So go out there and make your feet just beautiful and preach the good news in his name. Amen.